So we turn to God's word, and um, as I say, I'm sermon this morning is titled The Danger of Spiritual Immaturity. So if you were with us last week, um, I was I preached a sermon uh, on suffering from the book of Hebrews, uh, saying that it was part of a series entitled the uh, God's Plan for Your Perseverance. And so uh, this sermon is actually, and, and the sermon I'm preaching this morning also falls under that, that, that series. It, it's, it's then uh, a sermon I want to preach to continue to remind us about the call that God has given to believers to persevere in the faith, to endure to the end. So facing the reality, making sure that we confront the reality that even though we believe, and we absolutely believe, that um, God, salvation is of grace and God has to save us. And from the beginning to the end, the Christian faith is one work of God's sovereign grace, God's mercy, God's power. And so all glory to him. And yet and still, there is the mystery. And we must hold intention, the callings Christians still have to strive to the end. And, and, and we, 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 we fight the good fight of faith, even though it's all in God's power and God's grace. I, I think that the Apostle Paul um, holds those two truths for us in tension as best as, as anyone else could when he says in Philippians 2 that um, we have to work, we have to strive and work out our salvation. Uh, but he says, it is God who works in you even to will, just to desire as well as to do. So God's grace is always sustaining us. And although my the sermon today is going to tell us a, is, is a warning passage, there's a lot of warning there, there's a lot of rebuke, and it's going to urge us on to press on in the faith. It's, I want to make sure that this sermon is undergirded by the, uh, by the fact, the most crucial fact that uh, salvation is all of God's grace. I, I want to make sure that you get that in your minds, that it's by God's grace. We need God to save us. It's God's mercy. God has to be kind to us. God has to be good to us. God has to treat me, as a psalmist says, like I do not deserve for me to be saved. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but actually, one of the ways God does that is by giving us passages like this, scriptures like this, um, a book like the book of Hebrews to keep his people, to make sure that his, his, that we don't get spiritually dull. We don't, um, we don't uh, become listless. We, 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 we keep our focus. We keep striving. We run this race to the end. And so this passage, uh, as I say, I've turned to this, Simon, this, this sermon, The Danger of Spiritual Immaturity. Now, as you think of that, that, that phrase, um, that title, I, I wonder how many of you actually, um, how you would measure your spiritual maturity. If I asked you if you were spiritually mature, um, how would you answer that? Uh, how would you begin to even understand the concept of, of, of spiritual um, maturity? Um, I actually think that it's a it's 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 a it's a it's an idea that Christians engage in very often. I think uh, Christians do question whether they're mature in the faith. I think the problem is that very often we have the wrong parameters for measuring it. We have and because we have the wrong understanding. Um, so we, of course, we ask ourselves if someone is mature. How do we appoint people to church offices? I think when we appoint people to to be pastors or to be 
leaders in different church departments or, or what have you, we're often asking ourselves the question, are they mature? We want to put people who are mature in these positions because we believe that um, uh, to, to, for, for that person to have that kind of spiritual responsibility, they need to have the character. Um, and, and so we often ask ourselves the question, but I think one of the, the, the problem is that there's, when we ask that question, there's so much of a focus on the external. Um, and we forget, we, we almost are tempted to forget that Christianity is an issue of the heart. Um, and so when we think of people who are mature, sometimes we're thinking of people who, if, if you want, are naturally mature, you know, mature in the physical things of life. You know, someone who, I don't know, has reached the heights of their career at a young age, or uh, they, 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 they settle down, they're, fat, they're married, they have children, and they've bought their house at a young age. We say this person is quite mature. Um, someone whose demeanor is rather sober uh, or serious, we, we, assume, we, we, we assume that to mean they're mature. Now, maybe in, if you want, again, the physical things of life, that might be true in, our, um, in, in natural things. But spiritually, that's not always in any way, shape, or form a mark of maturity. People can be, all those things I've mentioned, still be spiritually immature. Um, sometimes, again, even, even as far as religious acts are concerned, um, someone who's read their Bible comes to church regularly. Now, I'm not saying that those things are never indications of that. They, they might be, but they also might not be. Spiritual maturity is an issue of the heart. And this is where the writer to the Hebrews can help us. At least the way in which he deals with spiritual maturity in this context, which is a way I think is prevalent for much of the scriptures, and which, a way, which, is, a, which is a way in which I think is, is most helpful as we wonder, as we gauge the question of spiritual maturity. I, I think not just what spiritual maturity is, but when this writer to the Hebrews addresses what the consequences of spiritual immaturity are, then he, he gives us insight into this idea, into, this, uh, into the importance, the significance of spiritual maturity uh, in a way that is you know, invaluable. Now, let me, say, let me, let me um, read, read this out to you as an explanation of, of what is happening, I think, in, in this context. So Hebrews 5, uh, from verses 12, um, I'm not going to focus too much on the warning passages, uh, but, but, but as far as a section is concerned, verses 11 through to chapter 6 and verse 12 is almost an isolated section of, in and of itself. It's a transitional section in a way. So it, it, it is right to consider that um, as a whole, but I'm not going to spend too much time on the warnings, the, th those um, powerful stern warnings that occupy verses 4 through to around verse 10. But listen to this as, a, as an explanation of this section. The author writes to the congregation, these, or, or to the believers, to the Hebrew believers, rebuking them for their descent into or display of spiritual maturity, and warns them that continuing in that path will put their salvation at risk. The author writes to the congregation, rebuking them for their descent into or their display of spiritual immaturity, and warns them that continuing in that path, continuing in that path, will put their salvation at risk. If that's a, a correct definition, if that's a correct summary of what ha what's happening in this section here, let me say a few things. One is that you, it shows us that you can point to displays of spiritual immaturity, right? You can point to, you can say someone is being spiritually immature. My, 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 my words are precise there. Someone is being spiritually mature. It, it, it's, 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 it may, might be a different thing to say someone is spiritually immature, 
but certain that someone is being spiritually immature. Um, you can point to it. So even though, as I've said, the parameters are not always clear to us, um, the, the writer to the Hebrews does, is able to point out and look at these Christians and say, Yo, you're being spiritually immature. Another thing is spiritual immaturity is reprehensible. There's nothing praiseworthy about it. Let, let me tell you what I mean. When we often read, if we read this passage and we realize that he refers to them at, as babies, as it, you're, you're, you're babies, you're, you're, you're being babies, you're babes, we might be tempted to neutralize that, to, um, to remove any sort of uh, rebuke, any sort of, uh, uh, any, any sort of uh, rebuke on the part of the right author to the Hebrews. We might start to think, we might think, okay, it's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It'd be better to, for, the, for us to be mature, but it's not a bad thing. It's just, it could be a neutral thing. And actually in this context, that's not the case. Now, I understand that, actually, that, that maybe that there's a sense in which you can speak about a baby and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's just a baby. It's, it's just what that, 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 that thing is. Uh, but the, but you, you know that even in our, uh, in our conversation, in the way we, we speak today, you, you, can have, you can imply both things by the use of a term baby. So if when, a, when, a, when a, a man calls his wife baby or vice versa, my baby, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. They're not, they're not rebuking their, 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 their partner. They're not rebuking their husband or wife. It's, it's, an, it's a term of endearment. If the wife turns to a husband who's failing to, um, to fulfill his responsibilities in whatever uh, area of life that is, and she says, she says, and she's saying, rather than step up to the plate like a man, you're being a baby, well, that's, uh, that's, it's not an term of endearment. There, there is it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, at the very least, it's a, it's a rebuke. It's a, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's a, it's a display of her disappointment. Something along those lines is happening here. When he's calling them a baby, he's saying you're you're not being what you should be. You're you're there's an abnormality here. Um, and so spiritual immaturity, at least in this context here, is not something to be okay with. It's reprehensible. It's um it's a rebuke. It's not neutral. It's not oh some folks. So 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 it's not some folks are babies. Some folks are mature. It's actually. I, sorry, and that's okay. It's actually. Christians who are in a bad spiritual state are defined as babies. You see, not a neutral, but a bad. And let me just say this semantically as well. I think maybe some of us might use uh, the, the term baby to refer to Christians who are new in the faith. And I understand that. And it, it might be that there's room to use that kind of language at points to say he's a baby in the faith because they just became a Christian. They were just converted yesterday or converted a few weeks ago. However, in this passage, at least, and I think maybe in the overwhelming sense in which the baby uh, analogy is used in the New Testament, it's not, that's not the sense. It's an either or. It's, it's either good or bad. Third thing to say is spiritual maturity in this context is perilous. It's perilous. That's why my sermon's been titled The Danger. This, this is dangerous to perseverance. Folks who abide in this state for too long eventually put their salvation at risk, right? And that's, that's the point that the writer to the Hebrews makes. After addressing the immaturity of these believers in, um, in Hebrews chapter 5, he then goes on to this warning passage. You say, listen, 
staying in that state of immaturity, what you're risking is your very faith, your very salvation. You fall away. Okay, and, and so that being said, as a kind of uh, introduction and preamble, let me point you to some things. We're going to try and um, get a deeper understanding of what the, the the author, the writer to the Hebrews means when he calls these believers spiritually immature, spiritually immature, and why it's so dangerous, and and what what that state is, what it is to be spiritually immature in the mind of the writer to the Hebrews, and why it's um, harmful to our persevering in the faith. I want to do that by highlighting some things here uh, as to, uh, as far as what the writer to the Hebrews is describing when he speaks of spiritual immaturity. Uh, so um, I, I want us to look at what the, core, what, what the symptoms are. What, what is it that he sees in the lives of these um, Hebrew believers that makes him think that they are spiritually immature? What does he see? What does he highlight and say, I, I saw these things. And so this proves to me that you're spiritually immature. Um, then I want us to look at the, 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 the cause of that spiritual immaturity. What, what causes that? Why, why are they now in this, in this place? Why are they now displaying these symptoms uh, that makes him call them spiritually immature? Then the, the danger of this, as I've said already, the danger of spiritual maturity that the writer to the Hebrews highlights um, and then the cure. What's the cure? What would be the cure for this state of spiritual maturity? When we address those things, and I will try and then I'll try and summarize what a proper definition of what spiritual immaturity in the mind of the writer to the Hebrews might be, and allow us to um, to, to to use that as a as a tool to um, hopefully this morning just uh, search our hearts and. Um, see where, where we are standing as believers and uh, respond in, in faith and repentance to the word of the Lord. So firstly, what does he see? What are the symptoms for the writer to the Hebrews that makes him basically say, you, you guys are, you're really beginning to descend dangerously into a state of spiritually, spiritual immaturity, or you're in this dangerous state of spiritual immaturity. And I'm going to highlight three things. First one is, um, the first symptom is, what is a, a key term in this section? It, it's a term that frames verse, verse uh, 11, which is the opening verse I read, and verse 12, which I said spans then a section, a significant section in Hebrews. It's the term sluggishness, or depending on how your, your Bible translates it, dullness of hearing or dullness or slowness to learn. He said, I noticed that you are, there's a sluggishness on your part when it comes to hearing the word. Now, this is what was very crucial to say. Very often when we read this, if you've read this passage before, you might be, you might be, um, you might be tempted to focus, to put too much of a focus on a kind of intellectual apprehension of what the writer to the Hebrews has been teaching them. So he said, when I... He said in this passage, as you notice, that um, he, he, verse 11, he would have loved to teach them more things about, in the context, how Melchizedek points to the priesthood, the glorious priesthood of Jesus Christ. So essentially, I wanted to teach you deeper things about the Lord Jesus Christ, which he, by the way, goes on to do in chapter 7. And so almost, he's not like he says... I wanted to, but I'm not going to. He says, I want to teach you this, but actually before I teach you about the gloriousness about the, of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, let me just highlight something that disappoints me about the state in which you're in. 
And I'm highlighting this because it affects how you're going to receive that glorious teaching about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he says, the, the, one of the things I've noticed is you, you folks, I, I want to teach you these glorious truths, but you are dull, you're slow to learn. But he's not essentially just focusing on um, intellectual apprehension. Notice this by looking at what the contrast is in verse 12 of chapter 6. What does it mean? What is the opposite in the writer of the Hebrews mind of not being sluggish to hear the truth, hear the gospel, hear the, the, the message of Jesus Christ? Verse 12 of chapter 6. It is to be a follower of them who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. Don't be sluggish to hear the voice of God in the gospel. Don't be sluggish to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Rather be what? Be a theologian, rather be an able seminarian, rather learn, no, rather receive the word in such a way that it makes you someone who presses on in the faith, enduring all the trials you have to endure because Jesus Christ is supreme and putting all your hope in the promises of Jesus Christ. You see, the point I'm making is the sluggishness here is not merely an inability to maybe intellectually understand. It's an unwillingness in the hearts of these Christians to work out the implications of the gospel. What he's saying is, I would love to go on to you about greater truth about the priesthood of Christ, but your, your actions, perhaps, your lifestyle, your, your spiritual state at the moment gives me reason to have to warn you because I know when you hear the word, you're not, in a sense, you're not taking it to heart. I'm not seeing the responsiveness to the truth that genuine faith demands, right? The, 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 the commitment that the voice of Jesus Christ calls, calls us to every time the gospel is preached. The obedience is not there. There's an apathy, right? Um, and so in a sense, it's saying there's no point teaching you these things, not because you, don't un you won't understand intellectually, but you won't understand where it really matters in the heart. There's no point teaching you these things because it seems like you're not appropriating the effect it ought to have on your lives. And uh, if the word is not met by a worshipful reception in the heart of a believer and is not leading to a greater appreciation of the supremeness, the supremacy, the greatness of Christ, if the word of God is not deepening our commitment to him, then it becomes something that almost damns us. This is the result of, this should be the result of the, this, of the word of God, of you guys hearing the word, should be a deeper commitment for Christ. But he's saying, I'm not sure I would get that because you guys are sluggish now. Your heart is not open to receiving the, um, the word. You're not, you're not receiving the truth. They're not receiving the gospel as disciples, as slaves, as lovers of Jesus Christ. You see, and, and so this is what that sluggishness is, is a spiritual condition. And it, it, him seeing that, him seeing that there was a, as a reluctance, there was an apathy, there was um, an inertia almost. Um, there was no enthusiasm. He says, this is not how to receive the word. I can see that this is, a, this is a sign that you guys are spiritually immature. You're descending into a dangerous pattern of spiritual maturity. Another thing he sees is a lack of conviction. So not only is there no, no, no desire to receive the word of God, a robust passion and, 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 and enthusiasm to hear the voice of the master and, and appropriate it deep within the heart, there's also a lack.
lack of conviction. And if it almost follows, if there's, if there's a sluggishness to hear, then there's going to be a lack of conviction. The kind of conviction that drives you to live out what, it's tr what is true, even in your communities. He says in verse 12, you should be teachers by now. There's been enough time has elapsed for you to be teachers, but actually you need to be taught. There's no, you're now questioning almost. They're in a place where they're now even questioning the truth. So they haven't received the word as submissive disciples. They haven't received the words as those hearing the uh, powerful, authoritative, true voice of King Prophet Jesus. They're receiving it with so much doubt, so much question. There's a, there's a lack of conviction, which means he says, you're not even willing to teach others. You're not even able to teach others. Again, I don't think in this, in this verse, it's the fact that they're not able to, as in they haven't learned enough. You know, sometimes we think about that in evangelizing. A lot of us, we, we say, I, 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 I don't know what to say to people who are Muslims or who, or who are atheists. And we, that's not exactly what he's saying here. He, he's saying these folks are not willing to teach, not because they don't know enough, essentially because they don't love enough. They don't love enough. They don't believe enough. They don't desire enough. And he's saying, now you guys should be telling others about the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. Now I'm having to convince you of the basic things, the, the first principles, the early things, the elementary things, the ABCs. Again, they knew this, but somehow they had descended into this place where they knew these things, but now it's the hard issue that means they descended into this place where there's an inability to see the beauty of these truths. They, they descended into this place where their reception of the truth is now shrouded in doubt, in conviction. Sorry, in a lack of conviction. No conviction. So, so they, they don't even believe what they're hearing enough to rejoice in it and so to see the need to have to tell others. And he says, this is how I see that you guys are in a bad state of spiritual maturity. You, 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 don't, even, you don't even know if you believe what you're hearing. Third thing is a deficiency, he says, that he says they have in spiritual discernment. That's another thing that lets him know that this is another evidence of their spiritual immaturity is this deficiency in spiritual discernment, right? So notice in verses, um, I'm gonna read 12, 12 kind of B, the last sentence in verse 12. He says, you have become those who need milk and not those who can take solid food. Now, again, many times it seems like milk, you know, saying that we need milk is not even a bad thing. You know, you need milk to grow. Um, you know, we, we all need, we all needed milk at one stage to grow our bones and to be strong. So milk, milk can be a good thing. But again, we, we, all, we, we must not impose our own kind of 21st century ideas on the text. In this context, at least milk is not a good thing, or at least milk is not something he wants to be giving. Milk is something he has to give to these Christians because sadly, they're, they're, they're not strong enough to receive solid food. And that's a bad thing. The reason they're not strong enough to re receive solid food is not because they just became Christians yesterday. Far from the case. It's because of a spiritual problem. It's because of, of their experience in this, almost a state of backsliding. And he says, so now I have to give you milk and not solid food. And this is what he says. This is what solid food will do for you in verse 14. Solid food is given to those 
who, as they mature and in godliness, they exercise, if you want, their, 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 their spiritual muscle so that they can discern both good and evil. Right, so the deficiency, the 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 the, the sign that he started to, that, that he had that these Christians were in a state of spiritual immaturity was that the word of God was not controlling their discerning faculties. They weren't discerning life through the word of God, right? They they they, they weren't able to discern both good and evil. They were not filtering life through the lenses of God's truth. Right, they were they weren't uh, filtering life through the prism of God's word, right? So so now you you are not even able to see those things that please God and those things that do not. In a sense, I think he's saying, I see that you still allow yourselves to be defined by the standards and attitudes of the world. So in one sense, the evidence he had, the the thing he saw that showed him that these folks were in a state of spiritual immaturity was a worldliness. They weren't living by faith, right? They weren't. They, they, now, now we, we read the book of Hebrews and we know that what has happened essentially to these Christians is we, we get the hints and we get the suggestion that what has happened to these Christians is that they, they've had to suffer for being Christians and they've, they've, they've had to lose a lot of things. They've had to lose face. Uh, they've lost reputation. They haven't been popular with the world because they are Christians, right? And what you have here is believers who are saying, is it worth, is Jesus... Is it worth following Jesus over losing these things? Is Jesus really better than these things? Like, like we're, we're not sure anymore, right? And we're not sure if it's, 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 it's true that it's, it's better to have Christ than it is to have all the riches of the world. We're not sure that it's, it's, it's true that you can have satisfaction in Jesus Christ um, even though you don't have all the women or even though you don't have all the money or all the reputation. We're not sure that the, the, the self-denial and the sacrifices that Christ calls us to is worth it. We're not so sure anymore. And, and he's saying, you see, because you're in, you're in a state of spiritual maturity, you can't see what is good from what is bad. You can't see what is true from what is false. You can't see what is really worth it, what is really valuable from what is worthless. That's what, what it is to be in a state of spiritual maturity. And friends, we go through that, don't we? Uh, times when we, we start to define our lives by the standards of the world, by how much money we have, um, even though the Bible calls believers to live in contentment. Don't love riches, don't love money, right? If you have, if we have shelter, we have clothing, we have food, let us be content and let us put our trust in the Lord. But so easily we drift to the standards of the world and we start to define our lives by how the person who is living for this present world is defining his life. We lack spiritual discernment. And it, it, that might be a, ma a mark of spiritual immaturity, not, be able to, not being able to see, not looking at things through the eyes of faith. And so we, we imbibe attitudes and patterns and thought patterns and beliefs that actually are, are, are from, this, from Satan. They, they belong to the God of this world. So that, those were the things he saw that let him know. These are the symptoms of the spiritual immaturity. What did he see in these Hebrew believers? Um, he saw a sluggishness to hear. There was no love, no passion, no desire to, uh, to, to, to really tease out the implications of the gospel. They just heard it. It's like elevator music. It's like music in a shopping center. They just heard it, but yeah, you couldn't, they couldn't remember what it was 
a, a few moments after. It wasn't changing their lives. It wasn't calling them to any kind of radical obedience. It was that. It was a deficiency. Sorry, it was a lack of conviction. No longer did they believe these things enough to tell others. In fact, they needed to be reassured that all this stuff was worth it, all this repentance, all this Jesus stuff. Um, it was a deficiency in spiritual discernment. They weren't able to discern anymore. They couldn't. They were not living as worldlings, spiritual immaturity. Second thing, though, I say is, I said, I'm, I said we're going to ask is, well, what was the cause of this? What, what, what led these believers down this road? Why, how did it get to this position where now there's a sluggishness to hear? Because they were not always like this. It's something you pick up in the book of Hebrews. They were not always like this. They were not always babies. In fact, as soon as he rebukes them for being babies in this section, of spanning like 5, 11 to 14, in chapter 6, he's saying, now let's go on to maturity. So you see, it's a situation where he actually knows them to have been mature babies, sorry, mature Christians who have lapsed into this immaturity and he's warning them the danger of that, right? But what was the cause? Now, essentially in the book of Hebrews, it would seem, and we can rightly conjecture, that it's because they were just discouraged. They were tired. They had been suffering. You know, they, they Christianity wasn't making them, you know, the... It wasn't putting them at the top of things in the world. They weren't the world's favorite children. Christianity is never that. And, and, and they were discouraged by that. And, and they were beginning to question whether it was worth going through all, these, all this suffering, all these trials for the sake of Jesus Christ. But, you know, underlying that, and this is something that is repeated all the time in the book of Hebrews, underlying even their outward experiences, which were bitter and painful, um, Underlying the rejection that they suffered from the world, the writer to the Hebrews tells us is an issue of unbelief. Because there was a time when, so chapter 10 reminds us, tells us, for example, there was a time when they endured these things for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because they believed that God had something better in store. Because they believed that it was worth losing their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because to lose your life for Christ is to truly gain. They believed that. They had come to a point now where they were not believing. They, 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 things that happened, and yes, the sufferings that they experienced were the things that were threatening to, to cause their faith to unravel. But they had experienced things that had meant that they took their eyes off the promises of God. And they were fixing their eyes on this situation and on this present world. Right, so, so, so it's unbelief. It's ultimately unbelief. It was, a, it was an unwillingness to believe that the promises of God were more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Now they were desiring the approval of the world more than the approval of the Father. Uh, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John in his, um, in, in his uh, authoritative commentary on, on worldliness that... Uh, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As, as though the, the, the Apostle John wanted to draw us away from worldliness by showing us the beauty of the love of the Father. There's nothing you can lose in this world that's worth risking the love of Jesus Christ for, the presence of God. You know, later on in the book of Hebrews, in, in chapter 13, Chapter 13, the writer of the Hebrews reminds them, you can be content because God is my helper. I won't fear what man can do to me. So what if you lack all this stuff? Is it not worth knowing that you have the Father's love? Their faith had been weakened. They stopped believing the truth. And that was the cause. 
So spiritual immaturity is always a fight of faith. It's always about what do we choose? What will we choose to believe? And in these days where a lot of us maybe have faced the kind of trials that we've never faced in our lives before, what are we choosing, choosing to believe? God and his promises. And can I say that's the danger, is it not, of uh, the danger of, of prosperity teaching, for example, or prosperity gospel. Because if the gospel you believe is a gospel that tells you that God's goodness is seen in experiencing present day ease, experiencing blessing in this present world, experiencing comfort. That's just that's the only time you can know that God is good to you when you're rich, when you're healthy. Well, what happens when you see the damage that the coronavirus has caused? What happens when some of you have had to face the loss of jobs? And we trust God to provide for us, but um, he's sovereign over that. And he's sovereign over what's going to happen to your 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 employment and how these next few months will be for you. And there's a question there, isn't there? Am I seeking the gifts and benefits of God? Is my faith in God, for example, replacing my job? Is my faith in God bringing an end to this coronavirus in a few months? Or is my faith in God himself? Do I have an enduring or persevering faith that knows, friends, God could give us no blessings in this world, and that's not the case. He gives us ample, but he could give us no blessings in this world and still be, still have been more gracious to us than anyone has ever been because of the blessings he has in store for us in the next. Is that the faith that we have? Right? And the prosperity gospel at that level is harmful to genuine faith because it allows people to masquerade as possessors of genuine faith when really what they possess is a counterfeit faith that is with God for what it can receive in this present world that loves simply the gifts of God and not the giver himself. Um, and so they, their faith had stored. And that, that was the cause of, their, of this descent, why these mature believers all of a sudden were living as spiritually immature because they, 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 it was a trial of faith. It was unbelief, ultimately. Uh, that meant they couldn't look beyond their sufferings, look beyond the challenges to the face of God. Third thing I said we'll look at then is what was the danger involved in this? We, we've seen the symptoms, what it was that the writer to the Hebrews saw that made him think that this congregation was spiritually mature. We've, we've tried to analyze something of the cause of that in their own lives. But what does the writer to the Hebrews highlight as the danger? What is the danger of spiritual immaturity? Um, you know, ultimately, it's not just that you experience you don't experience certain temporal blessings. That that must be true. You know, there was there, there, were, there was even for these believers here. You you see that the writer of the Hebrew says you, you don't teach others about your faith anymore. So there's 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 a there's a, a, a lack of effectiveness. That's a danger, of course. People who are spiritually mature, who are in this kind of state, they 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 they, they lack spiritual usefulness. They're not very fruitful. They're not very zealous for the things of God. They uh, they, they, they don't put Christ first. They don't, they don't display his glory as they ought to. That was bad. But, you know, even more than that, and I'm not going to um, linger too long on those words in verses 4, but ultimately, from verse 4 onwards, what you're reading of, what you're reading of, my friends, is a warning against drifting away, drifting and drifting away till we fall, up, fall away from the truth. That's the danger of this dullness, the, the danger of this spiritual immaturity in which the spiritual immature position, which these Hebrew believers are, is that actually they would soon stop 
believing the saving grace of Jesus Christ himself. That the more they refuse to respond to the truth of God's word, that the more that they, they, they the more that they refuse to listen to the preaching of the gospel with desire, with passion, with humility, the more they would stop seeing the supremacy of Christ. Stop seeing why we need Jesus. Stop seeing the glory of the cross. You, you notice he pauses here before he speaks about the priesthood of Jesus. And you, you know that's chapter 7 through to about chapter 10 are glorious chapters addressing the, the priesthood of Christ. But here's the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making. What is the point of me expositing those things to you if you're not going to pause and see the ramifications? What is the ramification of Jesus Christ being our high priest? Is that our biggest problem in the world is sin. And there's only one who has dealt with our sin problem, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christ has dealt with our sin problem. And don't be fooled by your current situation as if this life was all there is. Whether in times of prosperity, like we've experienced previously in our, in our city, where we've lived our lives in luxury and with pleasures galore and fulfilling all our heart desires, or in times like this where there's more stringent conditions and some of us in experiencing even more adversity than others, this life is never all there is. It doesn't matter how things are going, good or bad, Ultimately, one day we stand before God in the day of judgment. Death invades our ranks. We leave the present world. We go to another one and stand before God. And sin damns us to an eternity in hell. And only Jesus can save from that. Only Jesus can save from that. That's the ramifications of Jesus Christ being your great high priest. Now imagine what it is for you. To stop believing that. Imagine what it is for you, for whatever reason, whatever troubles you're going through in this present world, is it worth risking your eternal salvation by falling away from Jesus? And the writer to the Hebrews says, this is what is at risk here when these Christians are tempted to stop taking heed to the message of the gospel. If I'm going to tell you about Jesus, you believers, and how you need him so I might reassure your faith and encourage you to keep pressing on and you're just going to listen to it passively, what grave danger you're forsaking Jesus. That's the danger here of spiritual immaturity. The danger of, of hearing without fearing is, is actually that we even, even those who profess to be Christians fall away. Fourthly, though, what is the, fourthly then, what is the cure? What is the cure? If someone's in this state of spiritual immaturity, um, does the writer to the Hebrews posit, suggest a possible cure for these Christian people who he's writing to, who he says are in a state of spiritual immaturity? Can they come out of it? Yes. Verses one to three of chapter six tell us that the writer to the Hebrews is not just, um, aware that they're in a state of spiritual maturity, he writes this to, to, to pull them out of it. Therefore, he says in verse 1, let, let's forsake the, ele the, 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 the elementary principles of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and let's press on to maturity. Now, just quickly, what he means when he says, let's forsake these principles, and he lists faith and repentance and these 
um, initial doctrines, if you want, these first doctrines of the faith. Again, remember, it's not so much that he's saying these are baby, baby truths. You know, some people have read chapter six like this. They go, they go to a church and they hear the preacher preaching about Jesus and preaching about faith and preaching about repentance. And they say, ah, oh, this is baby stuff, man. This is for children. Give us some um, the spirit. You know, let's, let's talk about the realms, the spiritual realms, they say. Let's talk about um, breaking generational curses. Let's talk about uh, fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat with Satan. Let's talk about the deeper stuff. It's not what the writer of the Hebrews is saying at all. Because, for example, if that was true, those things I just mentioned would be what um, takes up most of the New Testament, far from the case. In fact, if you look at those things carefully, you see that much of our New Testament teaching by the apostles themselves is taking up with the expostulate, with the um, expositing of, the elaborating upon those fundamental truths. What the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, don't let us have to keep, we shouldn't have to be convincing you about this. He, he's saying, take these, these elementary truths and grow deeper in their implications as you see how Jesus Christ has has, has transformed the meaning of faith and worship. Go deeper into them. L don't let it be that we have to keep going back to convince you of these things that you should already know because you're not, you're not deciding to grow deeper in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the way to do Christian Christianity, is to go deeper, deeper, as one hymn says, deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus. Daily let me go. He's saying, go deeper into the truth. Keep going deeper in these trees. He's not saying abandon them, but, but build on the foundation. Don't make us have to keep relaying the foundation because, you keep, because you're descending into this um, state of spiritual maturity, putting your salvation at risk. But what's the cure? Let me say a few. Let me say, say a number of things. The cure then is, in one sense, is to, for them to press on. He said, let's go on to maturity, to press on to maturity. So essentially, I think, is, is a repentance. He, he calls them to repentance. So in one sense, they need to, they need to accept his, his analysis, his rebuke, you need to accept that. Say, we are spiritually mature, and this is not a place to stay. It's not okay to be here. It's not okay to um, hear the word of God as if it was just background music and ignore its implications. It's not okay. No, we're going to press on. We're going to press on to maturity. So we're going to repent and go back to the word of truth and really say, what does the word of God say for my life? What does what Jesus Christ, for them I'm saying, what does Christ being the great high priest, what does it mean for us and how we relate to wealth and how we relate to all these other things? We're going to press on. We have to repent. They're going to come in repentance. Believers repent. Repent of our listlessness. Repent of our idleness, our, our passivity in hearing the word of God. They say, no, I have to hear the word of God with authority. Secondly, the cure for spiritual maturity is just faith in Jesus, right? That's why after this, after this warning and after this rebuke, what does he do again? He just presents Jesus. In fact, when he writes this letter, initially when he writes this letter, he writes this letter to Christians who he knows deserve the rebuke because they're in spiritual maturity. But what's this letter all about? It's about the glory of Jesus. So what do we need? What's the cure? What's the remedy? Is to see more of Jesus. More of Jesus would I know, says one hymn. More, more, more about Jesus. More, more, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness. See more of the one of his love who died for me. We need more of Jesus. More of why he is worth more than all this world has to offer. More of why he is the way, the truth, and the life. More of why 
There is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Apart from the name of Jesus Christ, more of why Jesus is worthy of praise. More of why come what may. All for Jesus. Jesus is always worthy. We need more of that. We need more of that. More of what he's done. More of who he is. More of what he's coming back to do. More of Jesus. Just let us soak me in Jesus. And to believe him. To believe his promises. And to know that he's worthy. He's worthy of being of living for. Right? Worthy is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. He's worthy of praise. That's what we just need, more of Jesus. Show me, give me more of Jesus Christ. Teach me more of Jesus. Tell me more about him. Tell me more about how his, he, he's king of the universe and how his very presence invades everything that we do and the ramifications that Jesus being on the throne has for all of life. Give me more of Jesus Christ. And for a faith that is strengthened by that, it, it seems to me that, a remedy for their spiritual immaturity in this passage is th these warnings. He warns them. He warns them. He, he, he wants to awaken them, right, from their, um, their, their, their spiritual sleep. Alert them. And, and those warnings are crucial. Nothing about what we understand about the grace of God should stop us from being able to be warned that if we, if we, if we don't, Snap out if you want. If we don't leave, forsake spiritual immaturity, uh, we're putting our salvation at risk. We need those serious warnings. We need to keep being warned, and that that will come. That will, that must come regularly in faithful teaching, in faithful preaching, um, in how we meditate on the scriptures. We can't abuse the grace. We don't. We, we don't in our own thinking begin to abuse God's grace, um, as though uh, we don't have a race to run. We need the warnings in the in the in the in the balance context, the right balance. Um, and you know, we believe we have to believe every bit as much that God is the one who preserves us. He's God who's preserving me from beginning to the end. And but yet we must be, we must believe in, in a perseverance, and that includes hearing these warnings that if we turn away from Jesus, we turn away, we, we stop trusting him, believing his truth, we stop believing the cross. Psst, all there is is uh, all there is 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 damnation left for us. Let's be warned. Yeah, there are people who have named the name of Jesus and have fallen away. I, I've known too many people. I've known people whom for, I thought they were better Christians than me, the way they lived, man. And they, I thought they loved Jesus more than me. And they're not Christians today. And I, we need those warnings. We need those warnings. But you know what we need more than that, perhaps, is this last thing that is indicated in verse 3. This will we do if God permits. If This will we do by, 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 by God's grace. What, what, what is it that we'll do? We will press on in maturity by God's grace, by God's blessing, by God's help. So you know what the cure for spiritual immaturity is? God's grace. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing way in which the writer to the Hebrews puts it, because right now in, in verses 1 to 3, he now joins the, 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 the believers he's writing to. You notice that he says in verse 1, he says, let us press on to maturity. Because in one sense, that's what spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity is a, a, a resolve, a commitment with, to, with a pure conscience, press on in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We never quite arrive, but we keep pressing on, as the Apostle Paul tells us. That's spiritual maturity. But it's done by grace, 
by grace we begin, by grace we end. So yes, we take the warnings, we want to repent, we pour out our heart to God in confession. But brothers and sisters, we need the grace of God. It's all of, of, of grace. Now this is a positive and this is not, uh, uh, this is not, this is, this is not, the, the writer of the Hebrews is not saying this with doubt. What God has begun in his people, he will faithfully complete. He will complete to the very end. This is the beauty, friends. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with our, with, with, with our economy, with uh, when the virus is going to be gone or, or not be gone. This is why we shouldn't waste our time with all these crazy conspiracy theories. It's not, it's not ultimately, our business is not relevant. Um, what we do know is God will keep us, come what may. Till we arrive in glory. God will keep us. He'll always be there. His grace is sufficient. And we praise God for that. Right? Uh, and so ultimately, this tells us that our, our, our salvation is all in God's hand. You're right? And coming out of this, sometimes the mess that we bring ourselves into, this, this quagmire of spiritual immaturity, is dependent on the grace of God. And are we not thankful for that? That is God's grace. Let me bring this to a close then. I, I, I just want to do, I want to do uh, two things. I want to define then, I want to give you a working definition of spiritual maturity. And I want you to, uh, and then I want to make uh, some application, right? From what we've said so far, looking at the, 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 uh, the symptoms of spiritual maturity, looking at the cause uh, or spiritual maturity, the danger of it, the cure for it. Let me tell you what I think spiritual maturity, according to this passage, is. According to Hebrews 5, uh, in this context, what he has in mind when he speaks about spiritual maturity. Uh, spiritual immaturity is, is, an, uh, is an, unhel an unhealthy state, right? An unhealthy state of a Christian's life where the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer being received with delight and submission but rather in passivity and a lack of enthusiasm. It is an absence of faith, or, or sorry, this exposes then a lack of faith and obedience, which results in ineffectiveness and which, if left unchecked, will dete deteriorate into the abandoning of the faith and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So spiritual maturity is an unhealthy state for a Christian to be in, where the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer received with delight and submission, which is how it should be received, but rather in passivity and a lack of enthusiasm. Uh, this exposes a lack of faith and obedience, which results in ineffectiveness. So we're not useful for the things, for the things of the kingdom. And if this, if we're left, if, we, if, if this state is left unchecked, it will deteriorate into the abandoning of the faith and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's what spiritual maturity is. That, that, that's a definition of what we're talking about uh, this morning. This is, it's, a, it's a devastating state for a Christian uh, to be in. And, and spiritual maturity is, 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 is in, that, in that sense, as I've said, the opposite. It's, it's choosing to pursue rather. As we receive God's word with obedience, with submission, uh, choosing to pursue the glorious hope that Jesus Christ has uh, for us. Okay, let me then make, make these applications in closing. Firstly, friends, then how, what kind of hearer are you? Are you are you are you hearing God's word with in in a state of spiritual maturity, 
or spiritual immaturity. Um, the writer to Hebrews and his analysis of spiritual maturity is very is heavily dependent on is heavily dependent on, on that which is happening um, in in the lives of the these Hebrew believers. He he, he says you're you're listening. So it's heavily dependent on the word of God and how they're receiving the word of God. And he says you're receiving the word of God with immaturity, right? It's how you're receiving the word of God. The word of God has to be received with a kind of obedience, with a kind of faith, with a kind of willingness that you're so far not demonstrating. He's calling them to be willing to tease out the implications of the word of Jesus Christ and what you understand about Christ. And, And he's saying, the measure, in one sense, the measurement for how we're receiving the word is the fruit it's bearing in our lives. And we have to be humble enough to assess our lives and say, what kind of hero am I this morning? And am I, am I an immature hero? Am I, am I in a place where the word of God is like elevator music? It's not having an effect. It's not gripping me. It's not transforming my thoughts. It's not dictating how I do life. And so the implication would be that I'm drifting this is crucial in this period where there's so many sermons for us to hear. You know, so many sermons. Just this morning, I've tried to I've tuned into about two other sermons already. Um, three, in fact, that I, I could have listened to. Um, I had to preach, so I, I had to stop. But there's so many sermons you can you can listen to. So many sermons available. Some of you can and probably should listen to three or four sermons today. Friends, you know the weightiness of hearing the voice of Jesus Christ? You know, the writer of the Hebrews is not talking about Christians who are hearing the prosperity gospel, for example, or a motivational message. No, they were hearing good preaching, good teaching. And yet their response to it was an indictment of their faith. What would God say about how we're responding to the teachings of Jesus Christ? And again, I say it's a wonderful thing to listen to sermons and we should. But remember the weightiness of hearing God's word. There's a big question to ask. Not was the preaching good? Was he a good preacher? Was it a good sermon? Not even just did I understand the sermon, but how am I going to use the truth of God? How am I going to, what does this mean for my life? And the word of God searches our hearts and calls us to respond either in obedience, to respond in obedience. Uh, otherwise, we put ourselves at risk of, of judgment. So what kind of hearers are we? Are we going to hear with our hearts and um, respond with obedience and faith? and press on to maturity. The word of God is there for you so that you can press on in maturity because the more you see the, the, the glory of Jesus Christ, the more you see his brightness uh, and, and, his, and, and his, his glory, this world and all its desires and all its passions and all its enticements, they fade away because this Jesus is so glorious. And the last thing I would just say is this. It's one thing, right, for me to talk to people who listen to, who are listening to this sermon and I say, you're in a bad state as a Christian. You're, you're hearing the word of God and it's not having the effect it should have. And I say to them, you need to repent and remember your first love almost and love the word of God again. But there might be some of you listening to me who actually, you don't like this. This sermon is not having a desired effect on you for a different reason. You don't like this sermon for a different reason. You don't like the sermon, not because there is a conflict within you between following your master and rejecting him or forsaking him, which is the kind of conflict the, writers, the, the Hebrew believers are experiencing, you have, there's a, there's a different, you don't like this sermon because 
there's never been a desire to listen to Jesus Christ. You, you've never thought his, his word was that authoritative. You never thought his word was that important. You've never thought it was worthwhile living your life by the things that Jesus has said. And so you might, you, 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 you'd prefer if I was speaking about something more positive or speaking about how we can uh, be, be motivated in this time of the coronavirus or speaking about how the God of heaven has blessings promised for you um, in, in just a matter of, of days and weeks and just hold on to you have all this blessing. But this word about repentance and this message about following Jesus and forsaking all to follow him and enduring for the end, it doesn't resonate with you because you've, you've never had Jesus as a master. He, he's never been... His word has never had that authority. He's never been the great prophet. That is the one whose word carries perfect authority and perfect truth. And what I want to say to you this morning is that if you're in that state, if you're in that position, uh, friends, you, you, you have only worthless things that you're hanging on to. The words outside of Jesus Christ, voices outside of Jesus Christ, they can only prepare you for life in the here and now, as it were, they can only allow you to live for today. But what about tomorrow? What about the day when we have to stand before God in judgment? And you know the thing is, when we stand before God in judgment, we stand before God in judgment, telling him how we lived in the life he gave us now. And, you know, we're meant to use this life for the glory of God. So what does that mean? Words outside of Jesus Christ, those who, anyone who directs us outside of the voice of Jesus Christ can't even direct us to use this life properly. And because they can't direct us to use this life properly, they prepare us only for condemnation in the next. Only Jesus Christ tells us what life was really made for, what it means. He tells us the beginning and he tells us the end because he's defined both. And, you know, he's defined the end of this life by his death and resurrection so that those who reject the gospel must face the consequences of their sins because they live every day in sin. They live every day. They know they, we live every day in enmity with our maker, taking all his good gifts and using them for evil. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that those who believe in him can see the end change for them. The end is, if you believe in Christ, you have an end that is filled with promise and hope. Why? Because at the end, you have to stand before God. And when you stand before God, because Jesus Christ died for you, you stand before your Father. Those who believe in the cross of Jesus Christ, they're welcome into the loving arms of their Father. He's our Father. And now we can't actually wait to meet him at the end. So how are you going to live your life? By, by words that will eventually fail you. They will misdirect you about how to use life and then place you before God's judgment in eternity. Or by the word of Jesus Christ, which will never fail. His word is yes and amen. It's true. We can hold on to it. And he's never wrong about life. Never wrong. Always right. And he will finally vindicate it when he returns and when we stand before God in judgment. So let me call you to forsake all the competing voices. Believe in the word of Jesus. Let, him, let his voice control all your life till he leads you finally to his rest. Amen.